Hey friends, if you grew up in church, what did you learn about your emotions and your emotional life? Our guest today learned, like many of us, that emotions were bad or at least unreliable, and she's on a mission to change the way we think of them in the church. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 338, Becky Castle-Miller and Trusting Your Emotions. All right. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for joining us. I know you're going to have we're going to have a great conversation today. Before we get into that, let me remind you, if you have not gone out to halfwaytherepodcast.com, that's where you can find show notes all the things that we do, uh, everything that we mentioned today. And I can almost guarantee it's going to be a bunch of books. There's probably going to be some in there. I'm almost sure uh, that you're going to want to check out. So those will be in the show notes. You just go to halfwaythepodcast.com, click the links. That way, if you're driving, you don't got to worry about it. You're doing the dishes. Don't get your phone all soapy. Just get do it when you're done, okay? You can go find that there uh, so that you can find everything that you need. Also, there's a link if you want to help support the show. There's a Patreon link you can support $5 a month. That does help. Some of you do that. I really appreciate those of you who do. Thank you uh, for helping out. All right, we have a great conversation today. I'm excited. Uh, our guest, I've seen her on Twitter. That's the, that's the place where I've seen her most. Uh, but I, I don't know if we've interacted, but I'm excited to make this connection. So she's a PhD student in New Testament at Wheaton College with Issa Macaulay. So that's pretty cool. Like that's uh, that's uh, that's got to be heady stuff, I'm guessing. She's looking at emotions in the Gospel of Luke. So that's, that's amazing. Um, she's got a whole bunch of other things, but she and her husband have five kids and a cat. We'll forgive her for that. They came back to the United States after living in the Netherlands for eight years. I bet that's an interesting story. Uh, so we're going to hear all of that. Our guest is Becky Castle Miller. Becky, welcome to Halfway There. I'm really excited to talk to you, Eric. I have also seen you on social media, and I'm really glad we get a chance to connect. I give kind of this broad uh, view of who you are and what you're doing. You have a family. You're doing a PhD, which is always serious business, right? So tell me about that, but tell me also like a little more about who you are and where God has you right at the moment. Uh, so I was serving at an international church in the, the Netherlands until 2020. So we moved back to the U.S. during the pandemic, um, partly because it was a good transition time for our kids, uh, for high school, for our oldest two, um, the, for the potential for me to do a Ph.D. Um, it was I looked at some schools in the Netherlands, but it was going to be a lot of commuting time or trying to study in a different language. Um, and also, um, my husband's aunt and uncle are pastors here in Wheaton where I live now and yeah. we're very close to them. And when his uncle was diagnosed with Parkinson's, that really helped us make the decision to move back and live near them and to be here for them and join their church. So it was a lot of reasons that God brought us back here two and a half years ago. And I am so grateful the way that God has greased the skids for my, my path. Uh, there have been a few times in my life where I have felt like I was on a tow rope, like a ski lift, like you grab onto the rope uh -huh. and it just pulls you and you just <laughs> slide. Right. And that is what moving back here and getting into this PhD program has been like for me, God has paved the way and opened doors for me. And I'm incredibly grateful. Yeah. Well, and you had the courage to step through them too, right? That's a, that's a big deal. Yeah. So. You know, did the work to study for the GRE and put myself back mm -hmm. through math lessons again and, oh, you no. know, did all that work, <laughs> did a ton of research, um, you know, prepped, went through the interview yep. gauntlet. So, you know, it was definitely a lot of work, but God truly opened the doors. I love it. That's great. 
Well, that's really interesting stuff. I'm curious, maybe we'll get into this, but how did you, why did you decide to study emotions in the gospel of Luke? That's pretty interesting. Sure. Um, I grew up in pretty fundamentalist Christian circles. I was homeschooled. My dad was a pastor. Um, and so a lot of the inputs I was getting from the church and curriculum around me was that my emotions were not to be trusted. My desires weren't to be trusted. Um, I needed to be really suspicious of, I didn't even know the word intuition, but any of like any of that gut sense, I needed to just distrust it all. Um, And so I grew up pretty emotionally unhealthy as far as not knowing how to name my emotions, how to be comfortable feeling my emotions, how to express them in healthy ways. I just try to shut them down all the time. Um, And so in my twenties, I had an emotional breakdown that was partly related to um, postpartum depression um, and started seeing a therapist who helped me learn how to identify and express my emotions. And uh, in that process, I also started researching spiritual abuse and bad Christian teachings on things like emotions and mental health. Um, And so I have been curious for almost 20 years now on emotional health and how it's talked about in Christian circles and how we can talk about it better and how we can bring healing to God's people, not by rejecting science and psychology, but by learning from the best experts in those fields and bringing that together with scripture and spiritual growth and spiritual formation and discipleship. Like how can we use the best tools of neuroscience and psychology to improve our spiritual and our emotional health? Um, Right. So when I was in the Netherlands, I started trying to write a book on Jesus emotions because I realized the way the church talked about emotion was not what I was seeing in the gospels. Jesus is very emotional um, God's people throughout scripture are emotional. God is emotional. Um, Wait, I got to ask some questions okay. here. Was it the same in the Netherlands as it as it is in the United States? So that's a good question. Um, I was not there as a cross-cultural minister working primarily with Dutch okay. people. I was there as a multicultural missionary working in an international church. So I was not fully immersed in Dutch culture. I was dealing with a hundred different cultures. Gotcha. So yes, I definitely met people from some cultures who had similar teaching on not trusting their emotions. I can think of conversations I had with friends from Kenya and um, Nigeria specifically, but also some of my Dutch friends talked about growing up in Dutch Protestant Christian circles, not trusting their emotions um, and Belgians as well. So I had various conversations with different people and some cultures had that Let's not be emotional. But then others, uh, Italians, Brazilians, tended to be just a lot more exuberantly emotional and not restrained in that. So I think Mm. some cultures have that and some cultures don't. That is interesting. Yeah. Okay. So then why do you think American Christianity, at least, is so afraid not only of emotions, but also psychology? Mm -hmm. So I have actually been tracing this history for the podcast I'm working on with my friend, Heather, um, which will hopefully be coming out in the spring. We are looking at the history of teaching on emotion in American Christianity. And we have traced it back to the 1800s. Um, The great revivals in the U S like the great awakening and some of the revivals in England and Scotland 
there was pushback on them because there was this idea that came out of them that when you get saved, you have this affective experience, like this emotional experience, this bodily experience, you feel things in your body. And there were these Uh, um, like physical demonstrations of God's power. And I'm still charismatic. So I, I believe that that happens and is legitimate, but the pushback had validity to it. And the pushback was you don't have to feel anything to have assurance of salvation. You don't have to have a particular experience to know that you are saved, to know that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, to know that you're faithfully following Jesus. And that was really reassuring for people at the time. They did need to hear that. It was important pushback. But we've kept the same language in Christian circles, but the language of the rest of culture has evolved. So there was this whole string of sermons and pamphlets and publishing things that used the phrase, facts, faith, and feelings. You have to trust in the facts of God's word and you need to have faith in those facts and your feelings may follow, but your feelings shouldn't come first and you don't need feelings to be reassured of, of God's faithfulness. Yeah. But now if you say facts, faith, feelings, and you denigrate the feelings piece Now what people hear is don't trust your emotions at all in any realm of life. Like no aspect of your life should you trust your feelings. So what started actually as a useful assurance of salvation has become and evolved into this teaching that makes Christians suspicious of any of their emotions. That's a really brief history, but you you can trace it through like the four spiritual laws, like Bill Bright's tract, uh, which has Mm -hmm. the facts, faith, feelings, train illustration, if people have seen that. But you can also then trace that influence through Tim LaHaye's work and James Dobson's work. So like all through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, this development was coming. Um, And then there's a whole reliance on reason, which actually comes from Greek philosophy and then the enlightenment. It's not biblical to rely on reason and to denigrate emotion, but we've imported that into our Christianity. And then you have, um, a distrust of science because I think of things like evolution theory. And so people who want to hold on to a creation view will start to dismiss science in general and psychology is a science. And so that is all tied together to to lead to distrust yeah. of science in general. Absolutely. Which is so weird to me that we have to throw out, you know, everything, all of science, like, but we don't do that. Right. You, you and I use gravity every day. We don't throw out science. We, we, we take advantage of science. Anyway. So I, that, that is odd to me, by the way, friends, if you're looking for an interesting, I'm looking forward to your podcast, Becky, if you're looking for an interesting, um, a tracing of fundamentalism in the United States. Check out my friend, uh, Chris Starin's show truce, which he has been doing this for maybe a year and a half. Uh, a couple of years ago we were in Nashville and he w- drove over to see the place where the scopes monkey trial took place. And then he, he did all that. So, um, anyway, he's been doing that fundamentalism and he can- touches on some of these same themes. So that might be kind of interesting for you guys. I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. But I love what you're tracing here. I think it's really fascinating. And it's an interesting statement to say it's not biblical to only rely on our minds Mm -hmm. because we're not only um, uh, minds, Mm -hmm. right? We're also bodies, which I think is 
way under uh, represented right. in Christian circles and we're emotions and we're, we're hearts. So mm-hmm. very interesting. Uh, so I love all that. Okay, that was a really good, a good synopsis. You also started to trace your story a little bit. So I want to go back into your story and let's, let's talk about that. So you mentioned you grew up in a kind of fundamentalist Christian home. Uh, was, where were you? What, what part of the world were you in? Uh, so I was, my hometown is in Missouri, uh, but my okay. dad uh, joined the army. And so we moved all over the U S uh, with the army. We lived in California, Alaska. Um, we lived in Germany when I was a teenager. Um, we also lived in Arkansas and then ended up back in Missouri again. And I finished out high school in my hometown. And then I went to Oklahoma for college, met my husband. We moved to Rhode Island and then we moved to the Netherlands. Okay. Wow. So that's all kind of all over the place. That's good. All right. Which part of Missouri? Um, the like North of Kansas city, a little town called St. Joseph. Okay. Oh, so you're okay. Well, that's where Brian's on. Yeah. 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 My dad's friends with Brian. Yep. I've I've got lots of friends who go to his church. I have been fascinated following Brian's story. I will tell you what, after I interviewed him last year, uh, I literally said to my wife, you know how there's that parable about selling everything and buying the field with the treasure in it? Let's move to St. Joseph, Missouri, because <laughs> I was like, I, I, he, he blew me away. It was, it was Brian's story is fascinating. A couple of my seminary friends um, have gone to his prayer school and really benefited from it. I just, it, he has such a great take, by the way, on friends, if you want to go check this out, on uh, this whole, the whole thing of like taking off renovation, he would call it renovation, not, not deconstruction. Right. So like you have to, you have to renovate the house as you're living in it was his metaphor, which I thought was really cool. Anyway. So interesting. So that probably makes you a Kansas city Royals fan. Maybe, you know, if, if you I like baseball, baseball potentially, I know, I know. All right, good. That's fine. I'm a Cardinals fan. You can't, I was just like right in the corner. My mom is from St. Louis. Yeah. So I have an affinity for the Cardinals. Um, but also my <laughs> husband is from Providence, Rhode Island. So oh, I so kind of have Boston to be, fan. uh, you know, Sox yeah. fan, but now I'm in Chicago and I there's a lot of peer pressure to be a Cubs that's fan. Hard. So that's hard. Being a Cubs fan is a tough life, Becky. Don't do it. Being a Red Sox fan used to be a tough life, and we don't talk about them on the show because they beat my Cardinals in 2004 in four miserable games. Anyway, all right, back to your story. So you grew up. This is what I wanted to know was you grew up in uh, so kind of kind of all over, but you said it was kind of a fundamentalist culture, right? So tell tell me about that and like what that right. What that so meant I mean we were using homeschool curriculum from Abeka okay. and Bob Jones. Um because I they were well. they were making homeschool curriculum and uh yep. you know being homeschooled actually was a huge benefit in a lot of ways. We moved so often it actually kept my education really consistent. My mom's an incredible educator. I got a stellar education. I mean the fact that uh me and my brothers all have master's degrees. One brother is almost done with his PhD in English. Uh, I'm in a PhD program and my other brother is kind of looking like, well, I guess I better get a PhD too. Uh, my dad has his demon. <laughs> like we're just, I'm grateful for the, what my family invested in my education yeah. and it has proven to be beneficial. Um, but there just weren't better options for curriculum at the time. Right. And so even things that my parents didn't believe and didn't teach us and didn't even know was being communicated to us was coming through the curriculum. Uh, wow. Um, like what? Um, there's a lot of racism baked into Bob Jones curriculum, like a lot. Yeah, I've gone back and read excerpts that people have posted. I'm like, that's horrifying. Like, no wonder it took me so long to like understand systemic racism because I was so inculcated to not understand it. Um, right. And things like, um, 
there were a lot of like missionary stories where people really had to suffer to follow God. And so I think I picked up this idea that you, you shouldn't do what you want to do in life. You need to do what God wants you to do, which is going to be miserable, but you should do it anyway. And you have to like force yourself to be joyful in the midst of it, which really messes up your emotions and your calling. Um, when I actually became essentially a missionary and worked in a church plant cross-culturally, it was an incredibly joyful experience. It was exactly what I wanted to be doing and what God called me to do. And it wasn't a hard suffering thing yeah. anyway at all. Were you, were you one of those kids like I was, that was just terrified God was going to call you someplace you didn't want to go and like, feel like you had to do it or lose your salvation. Right. You know? And, and make yourself happy with it in the process. Or be Jonah. Yeah. Right. Um, Man, yeah. we had a missionary bring like a, a, a 20 foot long snake skin to our, from, from like Afghanistan or uh, from, what was it called back then? Congo or whatever. It was Zaire. I think it was called back then. Right. Like I was like, no way I'm never going. <laughs> you know, anyway, go yeah. ahead. Um, and we went to Bill Gothard conferences. So, you know, like suspicion of rock music and like things I realized later kind of random stuff that my parents would say that I have now been like, Oh, that was a Bill Gothard thing. Like you shouldn't adopt kids because of like the generational curses and the, the stuff they might bring into your home, which that was just a weird Bill Gothard thing or like suspicion of cabbage patch dolls. And weird stuff where like the heart of God is for orphans and widows and um, like <laughs> foster care can right. be wonderful. And that's not something we should be afraid of as Christians. Um, so yeah, just weird stuff like that, that really crept in. And a lot of it was emotion related, like the Bill Gothard idea that women especially should have a cheerful co- countenance, like cultivate your, basically it's telling women to smile, which yeah. Now we we can acknowledge that's a really unhealthy thing to do, but it was very much baked into the um the, all the teaching. Yeah. How did all of that affect your relationship with God? I always loved God, wanted to follow Jesus. Wanted I think my natural disposition is to be a good rule follower. And yet at the same time, um, I'm an Enneagram eight and a, an INFJ, if you do Myers-Briggs and both of those like personality typing systems are the revolutionaries of the world. We're the rule breakers and the challengers and the defiant ones who change stuff because we don't put up with the status quo. And so I was both committed to being good and following the rules. And yet deep down, I have always had this drive to make things better and different. Um, so I think there was a lot of cognitive dissonance for me, especially growing up in a tradition where women were not leaders. Women couldn't be pastors. Women needed to get married and submit to their husbands. I forced myself into that box, but it did not fit me or I did not fit it. Um, and so it was a whole process of breaking out of that. Um, so, so my relationship with God, I, yeah, I had genuine love for God, but I also thought that there were a lot of rules I had to follow. And so there was a lot of legalism in it. And I also think I had some, uh, some bouts of, uh, religious OCD or scrupulosity, especially when I was a teenager, like intrusive thoughts, compulsive thoughts, a lot of compulsions around religious things. 
a lot of religious mm. fear. Um, and so that, that was a whole process of healing from that as well. Did that prevent you from seeing God personally or interacting with him personally? No, it didn't, but it just heaped a lot of guilt and shame mm. and like anxiety on me yeah. in the midst of trying to, to follow God. Um, which is in some ways a distortion, right? It is a distortion, a distortion right. of God and his character. Because God's, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if we're suffering under legalism and false guilt, it is not, it's not an easy yoke as it should be. Wow. So That's a great. So I suffered a lot in, in university and in my early twenties. And then, like I said, after that emotional breakdown, I really started questioning what I believed and looking, looking at different ways of, of understanding things. And that began what people would now call a deconstruction process for me, mm. which extended through after we moved to the Netherlands and I sensed more and more strongly this calling to pastor people, but I didn't think women could be pastors. Um, and then I encountered Rachel Held Evans and through her Scott McKnight. And I read Scott's yeah. The Blue Parakeet. I read Rachel's A Year of Biblical Womanhood. I read Sarah Bessie's Jesus Feminist. And it radically changed my perspective. I remember sitting on my bed in the sunlight one day, just weeping as I read Sarah Bessie talk about how much Jesus loved me as a woman. And I, I had to face the fact that I actually had believed that God loved me less because I was female. Wow. And that was a profound experience of, of receiving God's love in a way that I hadn't before. What was it? So describe that experience for me. Like describe, what was that like? What was it like? What were the things that you had to let go of? You know, it was, I, I just, I remember the moment of my back to my bedroom windows and the sun coming in, which in the Netherlands, when it rains all the time, like was an unusual weather day, which is probably why it stands out to me. But as it was sunny in the physical space, it was like sunlight shone into my soul. It was this revelation, this inbreaking of truth into the darkness I lived in that thought I was less than as a woman thought that God loved men more, that men were more important. And it wasn't, that wasn't a surface level thought that was pretty subconscious, but reading that reassurance that God loved me and valued me brought to the surface and brought to consciousness. Oh, I haven't actually believed that. I thought I was less than, I thought there was a hierarchy and I was lower down. Um, and that changed everything for me. I, once I accepted that God could gift and call women to be pastors, I realized that's what God had been calling me to do my whole life and moving me toward yeah. and training me for. And so then I realized I needed to go to seminary uh, to get trained for this calling. And I, I also was still trying to write this book on Jesus emotions and realized I didn't have the research skills to do it. And so seminary for me was both, it was, it was pastoral training and it was also like research and biblical studies training. I still haven't written that book. Like I finished my master's thesis on emotions and discipleship and then realized I needed to do more. So now I'm doing a PhD on emotions and Luke, and eventually I'll have a yeah. dissertation and write a book on Jesus. emotions. And that, that'll turn into a book, yeah. which, uh, yeah, I think that's good. I think it's so needed. Absolutely. So needed. So uh, a lot of, a lot of things you're talking about are things that I have contemplated as a, 
So I'm on, unlike uh, Myers Briggs, I'm ENFP, which means emotional chaos all the time. Oh, yeah. I'm an I love ENFPs though. Like they're so I'm fun. fun. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not always, you know, it can, it can, I can also not be fun. So I have to learn to deal with that, but nobody dealt with it right in, in the church. It just doesn't, it doesn't get dealt with and it doesn't get dealt with positively at all. There is no acknowledgement or empathy these people who say empathy is a sin make me crazy. Oh man, just I like what I did a podcast episode on that with Mark Allen Shelsky. We talked about empathy as yes, sin. yeah. Mark has been on the show. I love him, and he uh, a couple times. So actually, as you're talking, I'm like I was thinking back to that episode. So I'll link that in the. I always mention some related episodes in the show notes too, and he was one of the first ones. I was thinking about when Mark's, good. Okay. when Mark's book came out, "The Wisdom of Your Heart," which is a wonderful book. It came out I think in 2017, yes. and I read it, and I was like simultaneously overjoyed and devastated because I was like, this book is amazing. I was like, but this is the book I was going to write. I might as well give up. <laughs> he beat me to it. Well, there's room, right? There's room we, for we more a, healthy emotion. Woman's voice on it too. That's right. So I think that's okay. Not everybody's going to read Mark Alanchelsky. So, uh, which is good, but yeah, I think it's so powerful and so important and we've, we've got to do it. Okay. So I'm just really interested. This was, so this was your, kind of, I use the language of dark night of the soul. Cause I think that just is such a, I think it makes sense to, to me anyway, about what that is, or you can call it spiritual desert. So you went into the season of you were, you grew up as a sort of kid sort of subtly taking on these messages that you were not because you were a woman, you were not as loved by God. You and you're kind of maybe suppressing some emotions maybe running from a calling a little bit because you weren't allowed. Was that true? Yeah. I don't know if and, I'd call it running from a calling, but just completely blind to the fact that there you go, that that was what all the pieces were pointing towards. So I couldn't make sense of the pieces. Yeah. Okay. So confused me yeah. is, a, is a better word. Uh, and then you run into this time when you actually, it sounds like you said you had emotional breakdown. So like you, you could not do that anymore. Right. You had to figure that out. How'd that, how'd that go? And what did you, Maybe you've already talked about a little bit what you learned about yourself that you had, that you decided God did love you. Mm. What, what else, what else did you learn in that season? Well, you know, I learned, I learned that people are uncomfortable with strong women leaders. Um, yeah. Following that kind of revelation and like setting out on this path that I was so excited about and I was in a denomination that did affirm women as pastors. Um, and yet I kept running into people who wanted to limit me and put me back in the small box. Mm -hmm. uh, there were opportunities I was denied. There were people who wanted to squash me. There were people who fought back on my freedom. Um, so it actually, <laughs> it actually became almost in some ways more painful after I started pursuing my calling um, because I just kept running into walls and limits and what they call the stained glass ceiling, you know, women trying to, to achieve things in, in church leadership hit what they call the stained glass ceiling. Um, and so it, it actually was very painful. And I ended up going through, uh, an experience of, of spiritual abuse that was devastating and incredibly traumatizing. Um, and so when God brought us to Wheaton, um, it was, a, it's been a safe and healthy place to heal. But that, like the spiritual trauma I went through 
Um, and thankfully I've had the guidance of a wonderful trauma counselor that I've been seeing for, I think almost four years now, wonderful, um, trauma therapists. We've used EMDR and internal family systems and some great trauma healing tools. Um, but that certainly impacted my relationship with God as spiritual trauma does, because when people purporting to represent God to you, harm you, it is very hard not to map that onto God and, and feel like God is harming you or that God is not for you or that God is not protecting you. And when scriptures are wielded as weapons against you, it is hard to read the Bible because it is triggering um, in the, in the medical sense of the, the, you know, the trauma sense of the word, it is triggering to read the Bible. You can have a panic attack reading scripture because of the way people use those words against you. Um, so I've been grateful to be here. I've had a, a wonderful spiritual director and, and therapist, mm. uh, both helping me through all of that. And so, you know, I, I pulled back from ministry pretty significantly when we got here. I mean, it was the pandemic. We were going to church online. Yeah. Um, there was, there was almost in some ways no ministry to do, um, as I was trying to find jobs and, and work on my PhD application and stuff. Um, but I, I kind of like pulled back from the life of the church for a while, which I think is actually a normal and healthy thing to do when you're recovering from something like that. Um, but I had an experience just a few months ago that was again, like light turning on where um, a, a worship song came to mind. I've not really listened to worship music in several years um, because again, it's triggering for me, but there was a song yeah. that came to mind and I was like, I would like to listen to this. I am in a healthy place. I'm going to put it on and see how my body handles it. And I was able to worship musically without feeling those trauma symptoms. I was like, okay, I'm going to try another song and put something else on. And, and it was like, okay, I'm, I'm okay now. I'm at a stable place. I'm at a healthy place. And in, in that time, as I, as I was praying, I felt like God rekindled my love for the church and for ministry. And almost it was like, okay, I'm ready to go back into it. I've had a healthy time away. I I love the church. I look forward to doing pastoral ministry again when God opens the door for that for me. Interesting. Yeah. So trauma. So you said something that I want to, I want to discuss because you're also a biblical studies student. So am I, I'm my undergrad was in biblical studies at the now no longer meeting in person, Trinity uh, International oh, University. I'm so sorry. Uh, the, uh, but I actually had, I had that exact same thought literally like two weeks ago. Wow. I was thinking about, um, because I still love the Bible, right? I still love Jesus. I still love what we learn. Uh, but it's hard to read these days for me. We've had some church trauma of our own. So it's, it's, it's not uncommon, at least in my experience. I've met a lot of people going through that. And uh, it's so hard. Like, I think this is where we realize the, that it's actually, there's two different things happening, right? It's that there is the message of the gospel, which is you have so eloquently said is an easy yoke mm-hmm. is is actually good news. And then there's the religion that gets sort of piled on top, like doing an extra layer of shingles on your house over and over mm. again to try to stop it. I don't know. It's not it's what came to mind, but that, but it doesn't work right. Eventually it, it, it becomes a bigger problem. And 
reading scripture then becomes really hard. So what do you have any practices as you are starting to come back that um that help or that you have tried that didn't help something any anything like that? Mm-hmm. Um some things that can help. Well, let me start with if you have been through spiritual abuse or religious trauma and you have any panic attacks or physical trauma symptoms around spiritual disciplines, it is okay to stop doing them. Um, Re-traumatizing yourself is actually really unhealthy. I do a lot of pastoral care with abuse survivors. um, And and that is something that I, I have to tell them over and over. If going to church is giving you panic attacks, stop going to church. It is okay to focus on healing and stabilizing your body and healing the brain injury of trauma um, and calming down your your whole somatic system. Um, so, So if you're at the place where like it is actively triggering you, you need to stop and that's okay. If you are at the place where you feel like you would like to venture into some spiritual disciplines and you can do that in a way that's safe and healthy for you, what helps a lot of people is to read the Bible in a different translation than they're, than they're used to. So, um, you know, if there was a translation that was used in a tradition that was really harmful to you, like ESV, stop reading that translation. Um, try the common English Bible, the CEB, uh, it words things kind of differently. And that is really helpful for people or the message, use a paraphrase, um, and try reading that way for some people actually taking a small piece of scripture and writing it out by hand can be really helpful because that connects you to your body and connects you to physicality and it helps you go slowly through it. And then you also Mm. can create a thing of beauty if you like your handwriting. Um, uh, so, or even get one of those like journaling Bibles and try coloring in the pages. It's okay to write in your Bible. If you want to cross things out, draw arrows, circle things, illustrate things. Like that's also fine. Get a Bible just for journaling in, um, write your questions in the margins. So like physically interact with the text that can be helpful as well. Um, for some people trying completely new practices that are from a different tradition can be helpful. So for some people who are not liturgical, trying Lectio Divina can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. It can be meditative. It can feel safe. Again, it connects you to your body. It helps you move through scripture slowly and meditate on it. Um, there's a one, there's several really good Lectio Divina apps where, uh, you know, someone will read a piece of scripture and walk you through the whole Lectio process with usually soothing music. It, it can be a really calming, uh, meditative practice for some people. Switching church traditions can be helpful. You know, if you don't go to a liturgical church, trying an Anglican or Catholic church, if you do go to a liturgical church and that isn't feeling safe for you, then try something completely out of the, or go to a Methodist church, go to a a Wesleyan church, go to a vineyard church. I don't know. Try something really different. Yeah. Um, So those are some things that can be helpful to people and getting a trauma informed spiritual director who can walk you through those things and address your questions for God in a safe trauma informed environment can make a huge difference. How did you discover spiritual direction? Uh, I became Anglican. (laughs) Okay. All right. A tradition that has not abandoned it. Right. Yeah. Anglicans are really big on spiritual direction. Um, and so that, that was my exposure to a number of people in my church are trained spiritual directors. 
Um, so it's just a very common thing for Anglicans to have a spiritual director. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I want to make another podcast recommendation, friends. If you're interested in trying something like Lectio Divina, by the way, this is one of my favorite practices. It actually, I found myself doing this at the end of my seminary time without even knowing it. And then I did um, the Ignatian spiritual exercises with a Jesuit down mm. here at Sacred Heart in, in, and he, t- he taught it to me and I was like, oh, that's what I've been doing. Okay. But there's a podcast by my friend Jody Disnet called So Much More, Creating Space for God. And it essentially is Lectio. She's she's helping you through uh, through her podcast to kind of discover that. So I'll put that in the show notes too. Uh, so yeah, that's interesting that you say that. So this is what I, I, I have this theory about um, the paths that you can take when you go through this sort of, we can call it deconstruction or whatever you want to call it. Uh, process where you have to separate the religion you've been taught from the, your faith in Jesus um, and kind of remake that a little bit, um, that there's only certain ways you can go. Like there aren't, like people go go different directions, right? And so I know some people who I've had on the show who end up going uh, maybe clear, like one path is just to end up going to the, to like a, just unbelief at all together. Right is just to become an atheist and say right. I don't. Believe and I think that. it's important to distinguish between the term deconstruction and the term deconversion. A mm, lot of people mm-hmm. deconstruct and reconstruct That's their good. faith. And my hermeneutics professor went on this whole rant about how people misuse the word deconstruction because in philosophy, deconstruction has a very specific philosophical meaning, and that's not how we're using it in common parlance when we talk about like taking apart and rebuilding our faith. Um, but in the yeah. common parlance, like deconstruction, re-examining what you believe, rethinking it in light of scripture, um, exploring new interpretations of scripture in, in trying to be faithful, and then reconstructing is very different from deconverting. Deconverting is to actually leave your faith, and not everyone who deconstructs will deconvert. Right. Okay. So that's my point is that, that that's one way that people some people will go, right? There's un, There's others who will go down... Uh, a different, they'll have to go down a different stream of Christianity, if you mm-hmm. will, uh, because th- that's how they can let go of some of that fundamentalism, like you talked about, um, and then and still hold on to their faith, which is interesting. So they either become Anglican, Episcopalian, Catholic, mm-hmm. or Eastern or Orthodox. Orthodox yep. it's, it's like at the yep. at the far end yep. of the of the of the road, I think. Right? Do you find that to be true? Yeah. Well, y- you can see that in the public story of Beth Moore, who was Southern Baptist, and they. They didn't want her. So she went somewhere where she was yeah. welcomed in love, which was an Anglican church. Um, she writes about that in her memoir, which I've just started listening to. Um, so yes, a tradition change is pretty common. I see that uh, in a lot of people. Um, I do have some friends who recently became Eastern Orthodox. Um, I myself had kind of flirted with becoming Catholic probably about 10 years ago, Um but then like they're, they're not non-openness to women as priests kind of close that for me. So, uh, you Shuts know, be, down, you yeah. know, moving toward Anglican Episcopal made more sense for me. Um, so yeah, I, I think a tradition change is a very common part of a deconstruction process for people. Yeah. It can be helpful. It's, it's just interesting to me. And then, you know, sometimes people just double down and they're like, I just don't, I didn't know enough. And they go, they go after it. That's another option. Too. Some people recommit to being, yeah, literalists, fundamentalists, or, you know, whatever they recommit to their current tradition and push out their doubts. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So 
uh, we went into some of your story with, uh, you know, kind of coming out of that and, and doing all this. And I guess you told us about coming back. What So what else are you kind of writing about and things that you think maybe would be helpful for us to think about when it comes to emotions, mm-hmm. how we approach the Bible, that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, most of my work right now is on my coursework. I'm in my first year of my PhD in the U.S., schools, you normally do two years of coursework before you start your dissertation. Wheaton College has an accelerated program. Uh, A lot of times people will finish their coursework and then pass their comprehensive exams and then put their prospectus for their dissertation in front of the committee and then start writing their dissertation. And at Wheaton, they're like, no, we want you to finish sooner. (laughs) So I will actually be defending my dissertation proposal at the end of April, at the end of my first year. So I will actually start writing my dissertation this summer. Um, So I'm hoping to be done in three or four years instead of taking six years or whatever. We'll see. Um, So a lot of my work is toward my courses and dissertation prep. Um, And I've also invested quite a lot of time and energy right now in what I'm thinking of as um, public scholarship. Um, I've been trying to post on Instagram and TikTok little videos every day, uh, sharing basically my research and my work in bite-sized pieces for people. I've been trying to write a weekly substack to work out these ideas. It is helpful for me just to produce something rather than to just keep it all inside my head. So I'm kind of talking out my ideas in real time as I work them out before I put them down on paper for my dissertation. Um, so like right now I'm reading second temple Jewish literature and I'm reading books on the synoptic gospels and I'm in a Pauline theology class. So I'm working on a paper on Paul's emotions. Um, you know, there's a lot of really, honestly, boring stuff that you have to read and work through on your way to the stuff you're really passionate about. Yeah, but that's important, right? You got to you gotta kind of learn all that, all that context. All right. Well, I wanted to ask you, so I guess maybe uh, the best time would have been right after we talked about different traditions, but behind you, you have all of these icons and all these different uh, pictures and art pieces of art. And I know there's some interesting stories about how you got those. And I'm curious how you got into them. Yeah. So when I was uh, at seminary, I went to Northern Seminary, studied with Scott McKnight, but I was in the Netherlands. So I did Zoom classes. Uh, they really pioneered the Zoom classroom like way before the pandemic, which was cool. Nice. Uh, so I had an Eastern Orthodox professor who taught my early church history class, Brad Bradley Nassif. And he, he was a wonderful, he's such a wonderful man. Like he's just so gentle. And I could listen to his lectures for hours. He was so passionate about the early church and the patristic era. And he was really into iconography. And he told us so much about how icons were used for the pre-literate church. Like they told the stories of the gospel and the people in the Bible for those who couldn't read. Um, and they were mm. objects of of focus and intention uh, for prayer and meditation. Not that you pray to icons, but that they remind you of those who've gone before you in faith. And they um, they they teach God's story to God's people. Um, so I was living in a Catholic part of the Netherlands, and I got into uh, secondhand shopping. And there were like eight or nine really good. They call them Kringloopwinkels. Um, uh, secondhand shops in the area that I lived in. And so I was like thrifting all the time. And I kept finding all these icons, probably people would clean out Oma and Opa's attic, you know, and, and just like donate these boxes. So I've got on my wall, they go in like uh, canonical order. So like 
I've got the Trinity, Rublev's Trinity on the far side. And then it goes through, like, I've got Deborah from the Old Testament. And then I've got like the whole nativity story and then Jesus life teaching and crucifixion. And then I've got like early church saints over on this side. So it's kind of like my chronological icon wall. So most of them came from thrift stores in the Netherlands, but I got a few in Israel um, when I was there on a study trip and I'm going to Greece and Turkey this summer, I'm leading a trip with Northern. I'm absolutely looking for several more icons in Greece. Very cool. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of neat. That's one of the, that's a great example, I think of something that, you know, growing up in a more fundamentalist, um, tradition would not have been okay. Right. Right. It's just and weird to discover. Yeah. Why do you have all these saints on your wall? Right. What's, what's that about? Uh, but then to discover meaning and value in them and to go, okay. Uh, so do you have any particular one? Is there one that like stands out to you as like your favorite or is, is kind of a, something that you go to as a encouragement? Well, I actually have a whole other box of Mary icons that I didn't have room for on this wall. Like someday when I have a, an office that's not in my home, I will put up all my Mary ones. So I've got a whole collection of women of the Bible I've really focused on. And those are really meaningful to me. Um, I searched all over Israel, finally found a Mary Magdalene, looked every, like even in Magdala, oh, wow. they didn't have any Mary Magdalene icons. Weird. So like Mary and Tabitha and um, I've got Lydia and uh, Macrina, those like, and then Mary, Mama Mary, those are really special to me, uh, representing women in the Bible. I'm, I'd love to find a Phoebe and, uh. I'd love to find a Junia. My daughter's named Junia. Um, there you go. So that's that's what I'm going to keep my eye on when I'm looking for in Greece and Turkey. I like it. I love it. I think that's a really great example. All right. Well, Becky, I appreciate you sharing some of your story. I think the encouragement to think about our emotions and to travel down the road of what I really think is just spiritual maturity. I don't think it's, I don't think it has to be scary. Uh, but you know, sometimes growing up is a little scary and that's okay. Like you can, you can go through it. I think it's really encouraging. Uh, people can find you, your sub stack is what Bessie, Be Becky Castle Miller .substack.com. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Is that the best place to connect with you mm -hmm. guys? I got links at halfway there podcast.com, including, I promised you at the beginning before we started a list of books. And there is indeed a list of books in the show notes. You'll be able to, to get those. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, Becky, is there anything you want to leave us with? I, I really want to encourage Christians to let go of this idea that you can't trust your emotions. Emotions are part of the, the way God created us and God is emotional. And so when we are emotional, it is part of our being made in God's image. That is not something to reject about ourselves. Our emotions can feel big and overwhelming and uncontrollable. Um, and so sometimes we want to shut them out because we don't know what to do with them. They can overwhelm our bodies, but learning emotional regulation skills and emotional coping skills and learning to embrace the emotions God has given us. It's a really important part of our maturation process. I believe that we need to disciple our emotions, just like we disciple every other aspect of our lives with Jesus. Uh, that's what my dissertation will hopefully be about is how does yes. Jesus teach us how to do that in Luke's gospel? How does he shape the, the emotions of his followers? Yes, there are times that we need to examine our emotions, but I don't want us to start from the standpoint of not trusting them, but I want us to listen right. to them and feel them and examine them and say, okay, if hatred is coming up for me, but Jesus tells me not to hate my brother and to love my enemies, 
how can I rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to transform me? That hatred is telling me something important that I've been violated or harmed. And it's good to listen to that. And then by the power of the spirit, by learning new emotion concepts from Jesus, God can truly cultivate love of enemy in us. But that comes through this lifelong discipleship process, mm -hmm. not from ignoring or shutting down or, or distrusting our emotions. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The gospel is good news, right? And that even includes for our trauma. That even includes for the things I love that that was really well done with uh with because we don't think of hate as we think of it as just like a choice right or just like a is something irrational right but you're right there's something in there else that is um, that is painful there is all emotions have an object they're coming yeah. from somewhere something is is the stimulus our body is reacting, evaluating, predicting, remembering, and then our mind comes up with a meaning. And that's what the emotion is. The emotion is the meaning we give to those sensations. And then the emotion motivates us to take action. And as we shape our discipleship lives of following Jesus, the emotions we construct and the choices for action that we take become more and more like Jesus. Yeah. Amen. That's a good word. Uh, friends, you, what if, what if, your emotions can actually lead you into greater discipleship. Wow, what a thought. What a thought. You can do that. Uh, Becky, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation.